Uh, so normally the person who would be doing this is Chris, but Chris is not here, so he asked me if I would introduce Kurt, because Kurt and I have a long history together. Uh, we were in seminary together at the same time, and um, I was very eager to try to get into the New Testament PhD program. So I was determined to show the teachers that I knew my New Testament. And I was in this class on the Gospel of Mark, and one day we were talking about Mark 7, and the teacher asked us if anybody knew the Hebrew word for to approach. And I racked my brain for my Hebrew knowledge, trying to think, what is that verb? What is that verb? And then out of the left corner of my eye, I see this guy start to answer. I'm like, no, don't beat me to it. Don't beat me to it. And then he says, it's karav. And I look over. I see this dude with this blonde beard. And I think, I see how it is. Okay. Okay, I see who my competition in this class is. But uh, as the weeks went on, I realized he was, a, he was an Old Testament guy. So I was like, all right, we can be friends. You can have the Old Testament. You just leave the New Testament to me. And then at the end of the year, uh, he was actually granted the Excellence in Bible Award, which is given to like two people out of 150. So it's like being crowned like prom king of like biblical studies in the divinity school. Uh, and I was like, he's Old Testament. He can have it. Go ahead. Um, and then uh, he graduated, and I still had another year left. Um, and then I started to attend the Gathering Church in my third year. And uh, at the, in my last semester, I actually became part of a home group. And I recognized this guy. I was like, hey, it's the Karav guy. I know him. Um, and instead of finding my epic academic nemesis with whom I was ever to be locked in battle with, um, instead I found a very gentle, kind, humble, gracious and loving host and the great thing about meeting Kurt was I got to meet his wife Jenny at the same time and there's this beautiful thing about couples that God has brought together that it's like yes he was a loving guy and yes she was a loving lady but when he brought both of them together it was like their love wasn't just like multiplied by two but it was like exponentially increased and so like the welcoming uh, nest that they formed together is just really quite a blessing um, and then I graduated and they stuck around, but then they moved to Kentucky and then I came back and I was so sad that when I came back, I wasn't gonna get to see them. And then uh, just this past year, I got so excited when I heard that Kurt was going to be working at the Gathering Church again. And I was like, yes, this is wonderful. And then suddenly they brought these two little beautiful girls with them who had been born in the meantime. And um, it was like suddenly, yeah, I thought, Kurt was loving and Jenny was loving and that was exponentially like increasing the welcoming like wonder. But you added, you added M, uh, Eloise, sorry, I have to remember the names, Eloise and Olive. It's just too much, it's just too much. So we are very blessed to have Kurt here this morning with us and he will be preaching from the Old Testament. <laughs> he can have it. So. We are going to, I will be reading uh, a bit of Psalm 80 and then a bit of Isaiah 64, if you'll read with me. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou who leadest Joseph like a flock. Sorry, this is not the same as what's on the screen. 
I'm just going to read from the screen. Part of my back to you. Hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Awaken your might. Come and save us. Restore us, O God. Make your face shine on us, that we may be saved. How long, Lord God Almighty, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us an object of derision to our neighbors, and our enemies mock us. Restore us, God Almighty. Make your face shine on us, that we may be saved. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us, and we will call on your name. Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no one has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continue to sin against them, you are angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. Thank you, Joe. Uh, Before we begin, I I do have to say that uh, Joe said, I'm going to introduce you like you've never been introduced before. I said, I don't think I've ever been introduced before, Joe. He said, well, it shouldn't be that hard then. But I will say that's the first time I've ever been called a prom king in an introduction. So for that, I'm grateful. (laughs) I've made it. Um. And before we begin, too, so uh, as Joe mentioned, I'm at the Gathering Church, and so on behalf of the Gathering Church, uh, in case you don't know, maybe you're relatively new, the Gathering Church and Oak Church have a special bond because about three years ago or so, uh, the Gathering Church sent Chris and lots of other folks like Joe and the Hoffmans and however many other folks and said, go and plant Oak Church and set deep roots in this neighborhood and do good work here. And so from the people at the Gathering Church, Thank you uh, for listening and for obeying God's call and for being present here in this neighborhood and and working. And so uh, grace and peace on all of you and and the worship that you're giving life here in this place. Now let us pray before we begin. 
Gracious God, you promise that you are good to those who wait for you. May we wait with hope. May we look for you wherever we turn. May we open our eyes to how you're present among us in ways that that we hadn't seen before. God, be with us this morning. Speak a word of hope so that as we go forth from this place, that word might ring in our ears and and vibrate out through our vocal cords into the world that hope might spread from this place because of what you have done and are doing and will continue to do. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I love waiting. I just love it. I love waiting in line. I love waiting in traffic especially. I love waiting at the doctor. That might be my personal favorite. I have two young kids, so we do a decent amount of that. I love waiting on phone, on the phone, on hold. No, right? That's a lie. Most of us, the vast majority of us, do not enjoy waiting. We hate it, in fact. We're not very good at it. And in our culture that is so fast-paced and so instantaneous, we're really, really bad at waiting. I remember... Um, Joe mentioned that we have these two young daughters. When Eloise was born, um, or well, before that, when Jenny was pregnant, she started to bleed. And I'm no doctor, but I know that's not good. And we went, and she had this hematoma. And they basically said, we can't tell you if it's going to, I forget their terms. They're never great in the medical field, but it was something like end your pregnancy. And it's like, well, that's a really kind way of, or really uh, institutional way of saying something terrible. Um... They said, we can't really tell you what will happen. You just have to wait this one out. I was like, what? We can put a fake heart in people? Well, you're telling me I have to wait this one out? Thankfully for us, um, it turned out okay. Eloise is five years old today. Um, but in the midst of that, wait this one out didn't seem like a good plan of action. And I don't know about you, you know, maybe you're great at waiting. (laughs) Maybe you love waiting for test results, whether they're doctor or school or or for your job or for a relationship or whatever it might be. But waiting is almost always really, really difficult to do. So Advent, this is the first Sunday of Advent. Advent is about waiting. How nice of the church to create a whole month, basically, for us to practice waiting waiting, to talk about waiting, to try to live into waiting, because Advent means arrival or coming. So it's about celebrating the coming of Jesus. And we we do it before Christmas because we wait for this first, we celebrate and remember that first coming, but we also look to Jesus' second coming. So we wait for God to bring about restoration in the world, to, to make all the things that are broken and wrong right and healthy and whole, and to bring all the broken pieces back together again. Advent teaches us to wait with hope, which is different than just the passive waiting in a line or in traffic or, or even at a doctor's office where you just sit and wait. The first Sunday of Advent is traditionally we, we talk about hope. And hope is one of those things. When you hear hope, it's like, yay, hope, that's great, good, woohoo. Except hope always shows up when life sucks. 
Hope always shows up when life is dark and hard and there's chaos. Because hope exists because you want something to change. The, the, the current situation on the ground might be different or needs to be different. And so that's why hope shows up. That's why we want hope. Because we believe that things ought to be different and can be different. And Lord willing, will be different in our lives, in Durham, in this neighborhood, in our world. So hope shows up in the midst of war and refugee crises and hunger and poverty and addiction and illness. Those are the places, that's the fertile ground for hope. Not when your life is going great and everything's just peachy keen, right? So hope. Hope is necessary for life, but at times, life can seem pretty hopeless. Uh, before I was a pastor, I worked in a, a big public high school with... Um, youth who were quote-unquote at risk, um, but I got to work with a lot of students who were facing challenges no different than the rest of us. Sometimes it looked a little different, but a lot of the times um, it, it was things that we were struggling with. One of them was hopelessness, which leads youth to do things like take their own life at alarming rates, unfortunately, particularly among certain populations of our youth, like LGBTQ folks or folks who come from broken homes or folks who uh, have home situations that are abusive or where there's no food, and, and we had a lot of that. So I would work with these, these students who have these hopeless situations, and they're hopeless because they can't imagine a future that looks different than what they're in. Because their current situation says nothing is ever going to change. Nobody loves you. You're not valuable. You've got no point for living. Those situations are void of hope. And yet, those are the situations where hope can thrive the most. Because hope says that things don't have to be this way. That things, in fact, can and should be different. So when I was preparing for this, I was thinking about hope and hopelessness and life without hope. And I don't know if you've ever read Dante's epic poem, The Divine Comedy. I haven't. It's okay. But in one of those parts, in the first part, which is Inferno, um, he describes kind of entering the gates of hell. And inscribed on those gates is this phrase, Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Or abandon hope, all ye who enter here. Point is, this is a hopeless place. So for me, when I think about hopeless situations, that's hell. So in your life, in my life, in our neighbor's lives, when there's hopeless, when they are devoid of hope, that is hell on earth. It is the midst of being without God because there is no hope for a different future. So the thing with hope, though, is it requires you to wait. It doesn't offer an immediate fix. And these passages that, that Joe read today, they know about waiting with hope. It's, it's not about passive waiting. It's, it's this, um, this waiting that's filled with the hope that the need for hope is present, but new things can happen. So like Psalm 80, for instance. Hear, O shepherd of Israel... You who sit enthroned, uh, shine forth, awaken your might, come and save us. Right? You don't say come and save us unless you need saving from something. You don't say restore us, O God. Make your face shine upon us that we might be saved unless you need saving. You don't say the refrain that the psalmist says so often of how long, O Lord, Unless it's been a really long time waiting on something good, waiting on hope, waiting on something to change. So you say these things like, how long, O Lord? 
You have made us a source of contention to our neighbors and our enemies mock us. Restore us, O God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. And there's hope in there, though. Even though it's a dark place, there's hope that God is actually listening, which is why the psalmist says, hear us. Hey, pay attention, God. We're down here. Do you see what's happening? It doesn't look so great on the ground. We could really... uh, we could really you know, use you showing up to bring about something new in our lives. We're wasting away here because of what's going on. The, the passage in Isaiah, in Isaiah 64, that you would rip open the heavens and come down, that you'd tear apart the skies and come down to be with us. This isn't like, God, you know, when you get a minute, we could really use your help down here. Just take your time, you know, next week. Sometime. No, this is now. Rip apart the heavens. We need you immediately to come and make a difference in this very moment right here today, now. Come down and and, um, make the mountains tremble before you. We need you to show up and make your name known, the passage says. You're a God who acts on behalf of those who wait for you. We're waiting. It's time for you to show up and act, Isaiah says. We're wasting away in our sins. All our righteous deeds have become like these filthy rags, which, you know, it's, they've been contaminated with blood, which means ritually impure. It's like if you touch a dead corpse. A corpse is always dead. If you touch a corpse, you've been contaminated in ancient Israelite life. If you touch blood, you've been contaminated. It's not about being gross. It's about it making you ritually impure to be in God's presence. So it means, God, we're wasting away down here. We... we We need you, because of our sin, to step into our life and do something for us. Our sin causes us to shrivel up like a leaf. What a great image for fall. We know what that looks like. And our sin, the wind is just blowing us away. We need you to show up to do something. And the hope is there. Yet, O Lord, you are our Father. As we sang about these things, we are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hands. We are your people. The last verse that we read says, we're in relationship with you. Come be with us. Don't forget your children. Remember your promise. Remember your people. Oh God, how could you forget about us? So the idea is that we place our hope in God. We say, God, restore us. Bring about change and transformation. And if you're like me, you hear these things and you think, that's great. That sounds awesome, wonderful. Yes, Give me some of that. But what does that look like in our lives? How does that show up on the ground? Because we're talking about hope. Like, what is, what does it mean to hope in God? To wait on God? Because there are probably more, but at least two kinds of hope that we're familiar with. The first kind is where you hope in your circumstances. You're hoping for a job. You're hoping for an A on a test. You're hoping that so-and-so will like you. You're hoping these, you have these hopes and dreams for your children. None of those are bad. They're just circumstantial hope. And then the second kind of hope is the hope that we have in God. The hope that God can make things different, that God can change me and you and my neighbor and my children and my parents. And that God will change, that God wants to make a difference, that change is actually possible, that we're not just cruising along and it's going to be like this forever. That there is forgiveness. 
with God, but in our relationships as well, that there's deliverance possible. So to help illustrate these two kinds of, of hopes, I'll tell you a little bit of a story from mine and Jenny's lives. Um, for about three years, uh, when we lived here in Durham the first time, um, we didn't think that we would be able to have children uh, because my wife, Jenny, has um, endometriosis. You can ask people who know more about it, and they'll tell you all about it. Uh, the point is, it was um, going to be really difficult, if not impossible, to have children. It was a uh, difficult road to walk. It was a dark road to walk. It was pretty chaotic, um, isolating, and lonely, because we don't typically talk about these things in church. We don't talk about hard stuff very well um, at church oftentimes. The worst part of it was that uh, we were at this place in life where all our friends were having babies, which is wonderful, and we rejoiced with them, but it didn't take the sting away when we went back home and we still didn't have a child. And then Jenny had this physical reminder that came back every single month to tell her that she wasn't pregnant. It was really painful because of the endometriosis. And in our culture, right, we... We tend to tell women that, like, oh, you gotta be, you got to be married and you got to have babies because that's how you're going to be awesome and useful and wonderful in this world. Those are not bad things. <laughs> I happen to be married to a woman, which is wonderful, who has babies. It's great. But in that moment, and particularly when we raise our girls and say, oh, who are you going to marry? Well, I, maybe you won't marry. I don't know. Maybe God's called you to a life of singleness. What might that look like? But so there was all this pressure, and from her family, her mom is one of 12, so, you know, um, they're pretty fertile. <laughs> There's the expectation that you're going to have kids, and a bunch of them. So we're in this really deep, dark place, and during this time, um, and we both, by the way, felt called to be parents, so we knew it was going to, or we hoped it would happen one way or another, um, but we're in this really, really dark time. I'm in div school, and uh, the pastor at the Gathering Church um, the first time I was asked to preach there, uh, asked me to preach on the first Sunday of Advent, which is about hope. Well, it's kind of like, all right, that's not great timing, but I can deal with that. And then the passage assigned for that week was a genealogy, which if you didn't grow up in church, is basically the record of people having kids over and over and over again. So-and-so had so-and-so, and then they had so-and-so, and baby, 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 baby Jesus! which is wonderful, except if you're struggling with infertility. So I'm, and I confessed uh, in this sermon that we were not in a good place, that our hope uh, was all out of whack, that, that we hadn't been hoping in God like we should have been hoping, that we'd tried being hopeful on our own and kind of conjuring up our own hope to be hopeful, but that this hope for a child, which again is not a bad thing, but it became the central hope for our lives, the defining hope. So it was all we could think about and, and all we could pray about. And so it, it just threw everything out of whack. Now, thankfully, we had all these wonderful people in our lives, Joe and Nate and some others, uh, who, who loved us and carried us and cared for us. But we didn't have time to look or energy to look for Jesus because we were so busy looking for a kid. Again, I'm not saying that hope for a child is bad, but it can't be the driving force in your life. 
Hope for a lot of things can't be the driving force in your life. You can't put your hope in a political party or a politician. You can't put your hope in another person to make you happy, to complete you. You can't put your hope in wealth or riches or or nations or any number of things that the Bible lays out. My hope, we sing sometimes, my hope is built on nothing less. Right? That was a lie for us. It was built on all these other things. Hope is hard. Hope is elusive because you're, you're imagining what's possible without being able to see it in the present. Which by nature is very difficult to do because you can't see it. And it's not easy either. I've been down that road. Hope is this confident expectation that God is going to do what God has promised to do. So for us, God never promised that God would give us a kid, a child. But God did promise that God would walk through us in the valley of the shadow of death or in the deepest, darkest times, that in the midst of chaos, God would bring life. And who knows what life that, what shape that life might take, but that God would show up and be with us. And we experienced that, and it took a while to see it. We had some really persistent, faithful friends who kept showing up and bringing hope into our lives, hope that we didn't have to conjure for ourselves. Hope is this anticipation, this expectation that God is going to do something different, that God is the only one who's going to show up in our lives and change things. And it affects how we live in the present. That's the thing about hope. It's looking to the future and even to the past for what God has done in some other time, whether in my own life or a friend's life or even in the people of God's lives. But it affects the present. There's this word that I learned um, in seminary that I kind of latched onto, and you ne- why would you ever hear it anywhere else? Um, but it's prolepsis. Prolepsis. It's this idea that you act as if what you expect to happen has already happened. You act in the present as if what you expect to happen in the future has already happened. We as Christians do this. We expect God's kingdom to come, and in a way it has already shown up in Jesus. It's like a mustard seed or like yeast, and so it's really hard to see, but it grows and spreads, and you, we act in the community of faith as if God has already showed up, which God has in Jesus, and said the first will be last and the last will be first, and that your social standing doesn't matter, so it doesn't matter what your job or your pay looks like or what grades you got or whether you feel loved by your family, that all of us are well come here and we gather around this table to share this meal and then we go downstairs and we share that meal down there because we say this is how food works in the family of God I brought some you brought some let's all use it together hey you didn't bring any this time because who knows life was crazy this morning or you don't have that's okay we have some there's food enough for everybody we begin to proclaim justice and reconciliation and we say racism has no place in the church Not because it's politically expedient to say that, but because Jesus believed it. Because Jesus crossed boundaries and said the kingdom of God has shown up. And then we act like that. That's what hope does. Hope says that God is going to make the world right and that God wants to use you in making the world right. That God wants to change you and then help bring about change in your neighborhood and in your community. That's why we pray your kingdom come, your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Not, you know, later on when we die and when we all get to heaven. No, now. Because hope impacts what we do today and Tuesday morning at work or with your kids. That's why we can hope in the midst of dark times. Because it's not based on us. Because Jesus is our hope. And the nature of God is to bring hope into hopeless situations. So think about the biblical story. Sarah and Abraham, hopeless. And then they have a baby at who knows what age. Think about the story of of exile. Or even of exodus before that. No hope in that situation. Exile, they've been cast out of the promised land. There's no way they're ever going to come back. No, there's hope God's going to bring back. Jesus dies. That seems like a pretty hopeless situation if you've just invested the last three years of your life following this rabbi around who says all these wonderful things and then goes and dies on you. It's like, oh, that was not the plan, Jesus. But then Jesus is raised from the dead. Because that's what God does is bring hope into hopeless situations. So there's tons of hope in these, in these passages. And in particular, uh, in Psalm 80, there's all these references to face in the Hebrew. Some of it shows up in our English translations, but, but some of it doesn't. Um, but the idea is that it's in that first verse to shine out, to shine forth, to display beams, that God's going to be like this lighthouse. We need you to shine your light out into the world and shine your light onto us. Oh God, bring us back, restore us, which means cause us to turn around. We can't turn ourselves around, so turn us around so that we face you and we stand face to face with you and shine forth your face. Make your face shine upon us that we might see your light so that we might be restored. And the face to biblical writers, it's the most unique thing about a person. It's the most identifiable piece about a person. So the face represents the whole person. So that's why we're told to seek God's face And we're reminded in the priestly blessing in Numbers. I don't know if you remember that blessing, but it's what uh, how Aaron blesses the Israelites when they're in the wilderness. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face toward you and give you peace. The idea is that when you go out into the wilderness, you're going to need this blessing. You're going to need this shining forth on your life. And in the Isaiah passage that we read, when it's tear open the heavens and and come down and make the mountains quake, well, that's like Sinai. When God showed up and came down and Mount Sinai shook and there was thunder and lightning and fire, it's like pyrotechnics to the max. God showed up and it looked like that. There's this desire for your presence. And remember what happens when Moses goes up onto the mountain and then he comes back down. His face is radiant. It's glowing. Because he's been in the presence of God. So God and Moses stood face to face. And the shining of God's face sticks on Moses. And then Moses goes down into the people and his face is shining. He has this radiant face and he has to wear a veil. And then this is picked up in the New Testament. For God who said let let light shine out of darkness. The God who created the light made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So in the face of Jesus, we now see God's face and we have been shined upon by God's face. So we see this gracious and compassionate face of God shining on us. And the idea is that it sticks on us. And then when we go out from this place, we look a little bit different 
And it doesn't mean that we, you know, plaster on our fake smiles and say, everything is great because I'm a Christian. Yay. No. It means you're honest about the world and you confront the darkness. And, but you, you confess that you believe that God can and will change things, that there is hope. And I was thinking about this idea of seeing God's face. Um, I was reminded of this story, the power of seeing somebody's face. I don't know if you watch the Olympics. Um, our house, we love the Olympics. And so the Summer Olympics were in uh, 2016 down in Brazil. And there was this swimmer named Yusra Mardini. She was 18 years old and she won a heat um, in the women's 100-meter butterfly. Okay, no big deal. Lots of people win heats, particularly at the beginning. The thing is, though, she was competing for the refugee team under the Olympic flag because she was a Syrian and she'd had to, she was forced to leave her home because of the Civil War. So she's a refugee living in Germany, swimming under the Olympic flag, and she wins this heat. But what's really great about it is she won this heat and they start talking about her story. So in fleeing from Syria, she eventually ends up on the Aegean Sea in this boat that was built for about six or seven people. And they had, eight, they had 20 people on the boat. So more than double, uh, triple almost the, the capacity for the boat. And so they're, they're going along. The motor fails. The boat begins to take on water because there's so many people on board. But that's what you do when you're desperate for life and hope and a new situation. So the boat begins to sink. So she and her sister and then two other people who could swim, the only four people on the boat who could swim, get out into the cold waters and push the boat and swim and keep it afloat for three hours until they make it to shore safely. She's 18. What? Right? At 18, who knows what I was doing, but it was nothing that important. My favorite part of the story, though, is, is that's great. But it came out later that while she's swimming along, there was a small child on the boat who was scared to death. Rightfully so. So while she's swimming, keeping this boat afloat, she's making faces, funny faces at this child on the boat. So the child will laugh and be comforted by seeing her face. How cool is that? What a great kid. And she's swimming in the Olympics. The point is, though, that there's something about seeing a face that you know and love and trust that gives you hope, that can comfort you. And so in this face, this face of Jesus that we look upon, that we cling to with our hope, that hopefully as we gather around Jesus, our faces are shining because of Jesus, because God's shining face on us, that we carry this hope out into the world. Because God says things like, the darkness is like light to me. I'll never forget you. Even if your mom or your dad forgets you, I will never forget you. Because God promises to bring new things into the world. So Advent teaches us to wait with hope. So I hope, my hope for you and for me and for all of us is that we are people filled with hope, that we're hopeful people. But that as we go out into our lives, whatever that might look like for you later this afternoon and this week, that for one week, for this first week of Advent, we might help bring about hope in people's life. We might create, we might help show people a way of hope. Because we have seen hope in God's face. Let us pray.
God, we confess that a lot of times in our lives, we don't see your shining face. Because the stuff going on around us is too distracting. Because we get so caught up in our own lives and our own stories that we forget that we're part of this larger story. And like Peter, we begin to sink when we take our eyes off of you. God, turn us around. Bring us back into right relationship with you so that we can sit face to face with you. Restore us. Give us life. Revive us. God, may we celebrate as we wait your coming that that you came down once before in a small, helpless baby that you joined us in our suffering and in our despair and in our joy and laughter and that you took everything that we are and and you took it to the cross and you took us through the pain of death but that you raised us to new life on the other side. God, we thank you. We thank you that your shining, smiling face looks down and, and that you tell us you love us, that we're your family, that you're well pleased with us. God, bring hope into our lives today and tomorrow. May we bring hope into the lives of others. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.